This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Oh, you'll remember this one. When we were like in eighth grade, seventh, eighth grade, we had to do final testing each year. It was called cats testing. Remember that? Anybody else have to do that? All right, poll. Rob, they had that back then? Wow, that's, that's interesting. We had cats testing, and you had to, it was like a comprehensive standardized test that you had to do for all your stuff that year, for math and science and all that. And after each major section, they let you have a little break. They let you have a little water break, and they would give you graham crackers and like juice that was in a round plastic container that was just pure sugar, right? You remember this? After every major one, especially in the middle. And when you got to that, it's kind of like you get halfway through the test or, or through the major section of the science or whatever, and you're like, okay, if I can just make it through this, I get my graham cracker and my juice. That's where we're at this morning in First John. We're at the graham cracker and juice kind of reprise and refreshing moment. So as you open your Bibles to First John chapter 2, we'll be in verses 12 through 14 this morning. Hear the word of God. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would it do the work? Would it be a double-edged sword that cuts us to the core that it may take away the sinful cancer and that you would sew us back up with the tender hand of a physician that we may walk away from here today more and more like your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to this next section of the text this morning, it's apparent that this section of 1 John is a little odd stylistically, isn't it? In the previous section, we took another self-examination test to see whether we be in the faith or not. And that self-test was what? Anybody remember love for... Oh, okay. Let me see if I can pull up last week's sermon. I'll preach it real quick. Love for neighbor. Love for neighbor. So we would expect John to keep pressing forward, right? Pressing us with practicalities. And we would assume that he would continue examining us like we were, were going straight from science to math in the cat's testing, waiting for that graham cracker and juice, right? And that's where we assume wrong. For what lies before us this morning is a combination of kind of reprise and encouragement and even thesis, like purpose statement. Notice our text this morning almost has the cadence of a poem. In your Bible, most of your uh, Bibles will have this broken up broken up to look like poetry. Mine looks like that. I'm writing to you, little children. It's, it's in the form of a poem almost. And inside of this poem, there are, are six thesis statements or just 
purpose statements for what John is doing with the letter. And then there are three groups of people and then two verses. I'm sorry, two uh, tenses. I say groups, there are three groups of people. I say that loosely because John, in his typical fashion, doesn't play hard and fast with, with labels. There's some ambiguity to it. He's, he's trying to tell us a lot of stuff at once, and he kind of leaves it open like light and dark. There's a lot of stuff going on all at once. But before we dive headlong into the text, a good rule of thumb when we come to any portion of Scripture is to ask questions, to be good inquisitors. So we come to this portion, this odd little portion, and we ask what? What's John doing here? I mean, this just feels like it doesn't fit with anything in the whole book of 1 John. Those of you that have done your homework and read it multiple times, it feels odd and out of place, doesn't it? The, the answer as to what John is doing here is found in this. This section of 1 John acts as a saloon door. How many of you all have ever seen the old westerns where the, the wrangler walks into town and you can hear stirrups clinking and he goes into the saloon and he pushes the doors open and they go what? Pop, 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 pop. The hinge both ways. This text is like that. It looks back at everything that we have looked over so far, and it's looking forward to where we are going to go. So let's stop for just one moment and think about what we've covered so far in 1 John, all the way up through 1 John 2, verse 11. This isn't everything, but these are some major points for us to consider. Right? John is combating false teachers who are teaching everything from sinlessness to Gnosticism. We have the true knowledge. We're the Illuminati, right? John is combating uh, false teachers teaching uh, that if you do have some sort of profession of faith, you'll be sinless, right? John's teaching God uh, in the flesh is Jesus Christ. John is teaching we can't say that we walk in the light and keep doing dark things. John is teaching us that there is such a thing as sin, and it's serious. John is teaching us that we can be assured we are forgiven when we do what? Confess our sins and trust our advocate, our sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lord himself, the God-man. He's teaching us one way that we prove that we are true Christians is by loving God and loving neighbor. That's how we know about him found in the scriptures, that we love God and obey him. Uh, and then he's teaching us about fellowship, that with God and our fellow man, we come together reconciled through Jesus Christ what it means to be the family of God. These are just some of the themes that John has been laying out for us thus far in the first two chapters of this letter. So needless to say, while John has presented this information and a lot more, it's just a little bit, all in straightforward fashion, the content he has presented us, really if we stop and think about it in those bullet point style things like that, they're monumental. These are no little passing matters that we just kind of curtsy on by. These are huge, monumental Christian truths. These are grand truths that we each have to come to terms with. So John, in his pastoral fashion, it's loving yet firm. He's called each of us to examine ourselves with all of this content that we've had so far. Not so we may doubt and worry, but that we may have confidence and assurance and sanctification that we may rest in Christ and become more like him. 
That's what we have. And yet, within all of this, even if we find ourselves lacking, if one of us finds that we have faltered in one of these areas that we've looked at, he isn't rebuking us. John isn't rebuking us unto the hellfire. Like, get out of here. You're not part of this perfect club like the false teachers were saying. No, John is patiently and lovingly and urgently, matter of fact, calling us to repent that we may truly, joyfully be in fellowship of faith. That's the look back. John is not calling us to these truths, really. It's not John sitting down with a, a quill and ink. and just, I'm just going to let people know what I think. No, this is the Holy Spirit carrying John along to write these words for then and now. Eternal words with eternal application. See, everything so far has been crucial and huge. And we can all say that, yes, these are huge monumental truths, but they're a bit overwhelming. Some of what we've had to grapple with has been overwhelming. Sin, sacrifice, advocacy, Christ, forgiveness, loving God, loving neighbor, fellowship. These are overwhelming. And as we have introspected, and you should have, examining yourselves, you might feel exhausted. Maybe even physically. Mentally, spiritually. Like this, man, every week the pastor has me examining myself. And I know he says he doesn't want me to question and doubt my faith, but I'm starting to feel like that's what he wants. Man, I don't know how much more I can take it. And this is where the Holy Spirit, inspiring John, our second advocate, the Holy Spirit, brings us into fellowship with the Father and Son by knowing that the original audience and us would face this thought. So just like in the finals week, right here in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, we have a, a divine graham cracker and juice break for us to have a little bit of a breather. So here it is. Everybody take them out. They're under your seat. Crack them open, and we can have them, right? If if we see that this is what this is, it's a brief, a brief break where we look back, take a breather, and then look forward to see that we have a lot left before us, and it's going to be some difficult content, and so we just need to have a quick breather. All right, we can do this. See, this section of First John is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be an encouragement to keep us pressing forward so that we don't keep getting run down of, why do I always have to question myself? No, 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 no. This is refinement. This is pressing us forward to keep examining and to remember what we have learned thus far and to remember the whole reason for the letter, not to cause anxiety, not to cause us to doubt, not to cause exhaustion, but to give us confidence. Give us confidence. So here's our water break. Looking at verses 12 through 14, this morning in 1 John 2, I want us to notice three things right up front that are integral for getting this text right. The groups, the groups are these, little children slash children, fathers, and young men. There are the messages contained to these groups. To know sins are forgiven for his namesake. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because you have overcome the evil one, because you know the Father, 
because the word of God abides in you. Strong. Lots of repetition. And then there are tenses, right? Don't miss this. There are tenses. How John speaks about these, uh, these messages to these people. I am writing you. Present tense. It's ongoing. I am writing you. And then I write to you or I have wrote to you. Snapshot, overview, kind of a past tense almost. The, the Greek is called an aorist. It's like a snapshot event. I write to you and I am writing to you. So each of these three pieces of the puzzle are needed to understand what John is presenting us in the text this morning. So let's start with the tenses first. And I promise this matters. John says to each group once, I am writing to you and then I write to you. Why does he do this? Why do you think this is going on here? John is doing this for uh, immediate encouragement, for that kind of relief, the water break relief, to put fuel in the tank, and also to give emphasis. He's bold texting everything that's going on, and, is, and assuredly he is calling us the confidence, uh, the message of confidence in his letter. The present tense, I am writing to you, this is the immediate encouragement that we need. John is in essence saying to each group, hey, everybody, let's take a quick breather. Let's get on the same page. Let's not be, uh, let's not be intimidated by what we have or what is before us. Let's breathe and let's get through the rest of this test. Notice that in the present tense, this present active encouragement is actual encouragement. It's not manufactured where we've got to dig beneath the surface of like, well, this could be really encouraging if we understood what he was saying. No, it is real encouragement. It's not shady. It's not veiled. There is no symbolic or metaphorical language. It's straight to the point. It is light of light. I am writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you because you do know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you because you have done, conquered the evil one. Yes, this is real encouragement. Dear listener, I want to encourage you this morning with our text. Standing in the place of John, I want to take these ancient truths and make them a reality for you this morning. I want you to receive this as if it's some sort of benediction upon you being here today. If you have examined yourself and can confidently, with joy, say you have done well on the test so far, although not perfectly, of course, relish in these truths, bask in this light. Your sins are forgiven. They are. Not could be, not might be, are forgiven. Why? Why are they? Because you have done so well on the test so far? because you've been knocking it out, because you've got a 4.0 spiritual GPA right now, like, like God is looking down on you, like some academic-minded dad is like, if you don't get an A on this test, so help me, me. I'm going to spank you and put you in the corner and take away your Xbox. No, 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 no. God is not looking down on you like, oh, I hope they do well on the test, because if not, no, no. Your sins are forgiven. Why? For his namesake. Not for you, for his namesake. Know with confident joy that when you confess your sins, 
When you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive those sins and cleanse you, to have you become more like his son, Jesus. Know that when he forgives you, while it does benefit you, yes, while it does benefit you, there is extra credit and more put into your account. The main accomplishment of this action of gracious forgiveness is that of glorifying God. God bestows upon you your chief end to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Your sins are not forgiven because you're so awesome and amazing like Joel Olstein would have you think like you're a magnet on God's refrigerator. No, you are forgiven because God is gracious and loving and has caused you to become aware of the light, his light, his word, his way, his son, and your sins upon him. Dear saints, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Amen. But dear listener, not all. You know him who is from the beginning. You have the true knowledge, the actual light. The world will lie to you. But you have the word of life, the light of the gospel, the scriptures, and know who they testify of, our blessed triune God. Oh, because of this, you know him who is from the beginning, from the beginning of the world, God, from the beginning of the church, God, from the beginning of your life, God, from the beginning of your walk with him, God, your self-examinations, even when they are convicting, when they affirm you are walking in the light, they affirm what? That you know God. They affirm this. And if you know him, dear listener, dear saints, if you know him and you are in fellowship with him, and he is with you, what joyful confidence you should have. Tell me of what fellowship there is that's full of hatred. Tell me of what fellowship there is that's full of begrudging. Tell me what fellowship, what true joyful fellowship there is that is full of hatred and scowling. You are in fellowship with the God of all the universe who has sought you and bought you that you may return to the garden to his presence. What love, what amazing grace, what joy. How can we not keep from smiling and bubbling over and shouting and being a flickering flame caught on fire by his light meant to light up the whole world with the gospel? Dear saint, you know him, that God, him. But dear saint, dear saint, one last thing. Since you can confidently say your sins are forgiven on the basis of God's work in Christ for his glory, your joyful benefit because of this. And knowing that you know this God and you're in fellowship with him, your majestic maker, you have overcome the evil one. You overcome the evil one. In fact, this is what you have overcome. These truths and the, the living on them in joyful, confident fellowship with God and neighbor means that you have perfect tense, it's completed, overcome, conquered, crushed under your feet, the evil one, Satan himself, the dark personification of sin and rebellion against this gracious and loving God. 
It is true that like a crushed serpent, a rattlesnake, a copperhead, whatever you've got out of the holler, and no, we're not pulling them out right now, while he may still writhe about in the sun as the light warms his nerves, it is true. He may strike at you and that his tail may still whip, but these are all temporary battles in a war that he has lost already. Knowing what you know, and living out your love for God and love for neighbor, clinging to the scriptures, walking in the light. All of this is given to you by God as a gift, a gift of armor, a gift of his power. It has caused you to overcome the evil one. He, Satan, is a powerful foe. Do not rebuke him. Do not point your finger on his chest and poke him on the nose, for not even angels dare to do that. Read the book of Jude. But when faced with a noon-warmed lash from that crushed serpent, remind him of his defeat at the foot of the cross, which has given you light and has given you life. Remind him, no matter how hard he tries, his head has been crushed under the heel of the Son of God who continues to walk down his back, crushing every vertebrae under your feet, a saint in his church, He bruises your heel, but you've crushed him. You have overcome him. What a victory, dear saint. This is ours. Care not. It's ours. How often do we have these truths before us in God's word? And people in our lives and they cascade over us. They give us no zeal. They give us no encouragement because we are people that live in a technopoly always looking for something new. That's the iPhone 5. Give me the 15. This, this should never be old for us. Yet, it has become stale. Would it be that we would take this encouragement and not be dragged down under the mire of, I feel like I'm always having to examine myself in First John. Yes, you are, that you may know these truths and apply them to your life. That we may know we are forgiven, that we know him, and that we have overcome the evil one, not because of our might, but because of Christ. This is our truth. This is our encouragement. But now, we need some fuel for the tank. Fuel for the tank. Keep us going. All this encouragement is for you, dear beloved. That's where you stand in this. But see the big picture that the encouragement for now is to be your encouragement for each section for the rest of the test, each season of your life. That encouragement should never grow stale as we so often find it in our lives. That forgiveness should never grow stale That fellowship should never grow stale. That victory should never grow stale. No, it should cause us to want to shine the light of God more. May this never be so. Look forward to the rest of the test, to the rest of your walk, to the rest of your life, and own this truth. I write to you, speak to each and every one of you here today. Snapshot you to get this, get this. Know the Father, 
who know him who is from the beginning. You are strong because the word of God abides in you. It lives in you and you live in it. And because of this, you have overcome the evil one. Get that in your head. Get it in your head. That's why it's repeated twice. This is why I write to you. I'm writing to you this. Hear what God has said for us in 1 John. What a never-ending, refreshing spring of living water. And why often do we so run to springs of muck and mud when we have this clear water of Christ in his word? Maybe this morning you hear these truths and you do hear them with joy. You do, and you, you have this spark of hope within you. Like, okay, all right. I'm not amening because I'm a little convicted right now. I get it. I'm there with you. It's been a long week. It's tiring sometimes, but we need this encouragement to keep going. We need the breather. Maybe you've heard me address the crowd as saints, which means holy ones, a, a term meant to talk about Christians, those in the church. And maybe you affirm all of these great truths. Yes, amen. Tell the truth, shame the devil, whatever that means. Yes, Lord, I'm with you. But how do I know if I'm a saint? Am I really, am I really a part? Is this really for me? It's too good to be true. It's like Billy May saying, but wait, there's more. It's really for me. Even among your reprise, even among you cracking open the graham crackers and the juice, I've taught you to be a good inquirer, haven't I? You're asking a question of self-examination. Am I really a saint? Do I know that these truths, or do you know these truths, are for you, no matter who you are? Do you know that these truths that we have talked about in 1 John so far are for you, no matter who you are? No matter if you're male or female, slave or free, black, white, red, yellow, whatever external factor we can throw on things. These truths, you, you must take them. See, in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, John addresses three different groups, three different no matter who you are. There's a lot of scholarly debate as to what John is doing here why he's addressing them in the ways that he is. Is he addressing little children, fathers, and young men as literal groups, showing that John's just a bigot and a sexist? Doesn't care about women in the kitchen. Are these stages of spiritual maturity? Are fathers and, and young men the equivalent of elders and deacons, and thus prove that First John's nothing but like a, a manual for church leadership? I think when we look at a few words in this section, just words and the words of the groups, that we will see what the rest of the Bible has to say about this. It'll help us realize that these truths are for us no matter who we are. That everything that we see with the little children and the fathers and the young men, it's not a this is only it. It's a both and because John is trying to tell us so much such a short amount of space. You see, it's a both and because these, these labels are loaded terms. And we don't like to have loaded terms in Western society. We like for cat to only mean cat and ball to only mean ball. But that's not how the Bible works. For example, if I ask you, you know, 
Lalo, define wisdom for me. Jacob, define wisdom for me. Alana, define wisdom for me. We're going to get a plethora, a galamoffry, a potpourri of responses, aren't we? Which is going to be what? All at once, fear of the Lord, knowledge of him, right action, intentionality, thinking about consequences, etc., right? We have everything taken up into it at once. So how do you know that these truths of 1 John are yours no matter who you are? Let's examine the groups that John addresses to see the family of God. Firstly, John addresses the group little children. Little children. We've already seen this label back in 1 John 2 verse 1. Here's what that says. My little children, I am writing these things. Uh Uh-oh, there's the whole present tense again, right? I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then here in, in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. These two passages, they're almost identical, aren't they? 1 John 2, 1 seems, or 1 John 2, 12 seems to be a rehashing, almost in a way, poetically, of 1 John 2, 1. The term little children, and I'll stop using my laser quotes there. The term little children, here's a a unique term used only by John and only in 1 John. This should immediately give us clarity that John's not talking about literal little children. It's, It's a term that he's using in a different way. Actually, the, the translation little tri- children for the word technion, that's what it is in the Greek, that's totally fine. Little children's good. Don't doubt your Bible. But I think it does add some confusion about what John's doing here in 1 John. The respected scholars, Lau and Nita, say technon, technion is, is more accurately translated like this, a term of endearment like my dear ones, my dear ones. Like we would talk to a kid, like if Melody ran up here to me right now while she's in her daddy's lap and wanted to tell me something, I would say, my dear ones, term of endearment, my dear ones. So 1 John 2, 1 and verse 12, they actually make a whole lot more sense and they don't confuse our Western minds of thinking about a daycare. My little daycare children at the First Baptist Church down there, right? No. Listen to this whenever we think of it uh, and we hear these verses with dear ones for little children. My dear ones, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Verse 12, I'm writing to you, dear ones. Little children, the dear ones, the entire church, it's all of us, it's all of you. This is very much like the term beloved. Those whom God has set his love upon and those whom love him and their neighbor, the beloved bride of Christ, who he gave himself for. So not literal little kids, but everyone in the church body. My dear ones, my little children, my dear ones, are you a part of God's fellowship of his church? Do you believe in him? And all the truths that we've talked about so far in this morning, if you do, if you can say yes, You are a dear one. You are a beloved. You are a little child, no matter who you are. Amen? Next, we have fathers. 
fathers is in the plural here, obviously, meaning more than one. The Greek term is pater. You're getting a bunch of awesome knowledge that you can impress everyone this week. But it's not so we can be eggheads. It's so we can see the text clearly. So we can have this encouragement and the fuel for the tank clearly. The term right here, pater, while it's highly common in the New Testament, used over 400 times, the plural usage of it isn't so much. It's quite rare, actually. Usually when the term father is used in the New Testament in the singular, it's referring to God the Father or someone's father like John and James, their father was the son, the sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, their father, right? The plural use of fathers is not common. The plural usage in context, in almost every single context of the New Testament, has to do with ancestors or elders, alive or dead. So the second group isn't, I'm sorry I'm saying literally so much, I feel like a 15-year-old girl on Instagram. The, The second group is not literally just fathers, just guys who have kids. As if to say, if you're the age to be a father and you're a male and you haven't had children, then none of this counts for you. No, 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 no. John is addressing the mature in the church. He's addressing the mature, the elders, those who have maybe have more experience in sanctification and also actual age, which usually brings forth wisdom and grounding. This isn't uncommon. Paul uses the same idea in 1 Corinthians 4.15. Paul says this to the Corinthians, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul says he became the spiritual parent of the Corinthians. If we don't take it that way, and obviously that's what Paul's saying, if we don't take it that way, then Paul's a blaspheming heretic claiming to be God. He's claiming the same name as the Father. But we know what he means. The Corinthians did not have many faithful spiritual elders, spiritual parents, spiritual ancestors, regardless of family relations. That is what John is saying. You spiritual elders, you parents, you who are more seasoned in the faith and the walk. Does that mean that John isn't addressing actual fathers or parents? Of course not. Those who are ahead of us in Christ spiritually are many times actual fathers and actual mothers and actual aged. So the idea of parents and spiritual parents are at once taken up into this term. So I ask you, have you been walking the light of Christ for a long time? Do you humbly claim that you have still a long ways to go and a lot to learn? Then you sage and aged, you spiritual father or mother, even if you be physically young, these truths are for you. These truths are for you. What about young men? What about young men? Man, John is so sexist, isn't he? Fathers and young men who cares about the women. Our, our postmodern Western mind, we have to make all these egalitarian distinctions all the time. Everything's got to be, what about men's ministry? What about women's ministry? How come women can't do that? What about men? How can we? Blah, 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 blah. And for a society that hates gender so much, we've got to gender everything to death, worse than Latin or Greek or French or Spanish. How many of y'all ever took Spanish or French and you're right there in the middle of the exam and you're trying to remember what gender is a washing machine again? What gender is the taco truck? Lala, what gender is a storm? 
It could be both, right? El niño y la niña, right? Ooh. See, I know what I'm talking. Spoken tongues. Watch out. Right? We we gender everything to death, even though our language doesn't have gender. We don't say like Mr. Pulpit. It's just the pulpit, right? John isn't being sexist. See, in a former time, even we understood that. We used to be able to say our founding fathers, our founding fathers, but now we have to say founders because what about the women? What about Betsy Ross? Big, you bigot, right? Before the woke mind virus infected society, people understood these terms included women. They included all. They included our ancestors. They included our elders. They included the people around us. So here with young men, John is again addressing a larger group than just young men, like teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19. No, the term that he uses here is focusing on the youth aspect, the youth aspect. It's, it's used a handful of times in the New Testament, and each time while it's used as young man, it's never just like, oh, there was a young man, and it's focusing on the male. It's focusing on the youth, the young part. Another scripture that highlights this is, Actually, Acts 2.17, which is a recapitulation of Joel 2. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All right, what's the all flesh? Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, male and female. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, men and women, and expanding that, expanding that, Joel and, and Peter say what? Your young man, your young men shall dream, uh, see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. We're focusing on youth, younger people, younger, younger, younger. Maybe you're younger spiritually. Maybe you've only been walking this walk for two months, two years. Or maybe you're young physically. If you know these truths of 1 John, then you've found the true strength for all of your life. You're not like somebody that's getting down to the end of a rope and you've burned every bridge wondering what you were supposed to do with your life. You have it and a full life to live of this. The strength of 1 John is this. It's a living strength. It's living in the scriptures as you live in God and as he lives in you wearing his armor, his clothing. Ephesians 6, these truths are for you young man, young woman, spiritually or physically. Lastly, children. Verse 13 has the word children. It's a different form than verse 12. Children here is the word padia. This term's used commonly throughout the New Testament. And a majority of the time, it refers to actual children. The term that little children is derived from, it means children as well, but like the snapshot, kind of like offspring. If I said, all right, kids, talking to these here, right? But if I'm talking about offspring, we see the difference. And usually the distinction between the two is easily seen in Scripture. Actually, it's easily seen in Scripture in every single place between little children children except for one place. And guess where that happens to be? Right here in 1 John. In 1 John 2.18, John uses paideia, again, children, as an address, just like he does in verse 13. But in 1 John 2.18, which we'll get to in a few weeks, it's clear he's talking 
about the whole church, using that term children again like he did little children, my dear ones. So if, if John had not done this, it would be clear what's going on here, but he doesn't. He uses it interchangeably with little children. So does that mean that he doesn't care about kids? Does it mean that John did not care about kids in the church? No, of course not. See, the modern church, many today, many modern churches do not care about children. They don't. They either try and entertain them and silo them off somewhere so mommy and daddy can have their little experience, their baggage that you drop at the door. Or they treat them like demons, which the scriptures say opposite. The scriptures say that our children are a blessing and a heritage from the Lord, Psalm 127. Again, we have to remember these terms have all been taken up into this meaning, into children and little children. I want you to hear this. Using the same term as John uses here, children, physical children. Jesus says this in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you, are, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin is better for him to have a great, excuse me, millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And in the very next chapter, Matthew 19, Jesus says this, says this about uh, first, then children were brought to him, that's Jesus, that he may lay his hands on them, literally bless them and pray for them. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said what? Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Have little children always been a part of the church? Yes. And not just when they are making some sort of profession of faith. They're right here from the beginning, raised and put in the presence of Christ from birth like parents of these children in Matthew 18 and 19 in the presence of God did, not by the choice of the child, but by taking them and saying, you go sit on his lap, young man. Go sit on his lap, little girl. This is Christ, the God of all the universe. Go to him. That is your job as a parent. Oh, dear one, dear parent, that is your job. If you have children under you, it is you. It is you who takes them and says, look unto Christ. Look unto him. Look unto him. Christ calls us all to be like children, using them as a parable, calling us to trust in him that he would lay our hands, lay his hands on us and bless us. So whether you are old or young physically, whether you are a spiritual elder or spiritually young, we're called to be like children, dear ones, full of awe and wonder at Christ, full of trust. However, when we step back and think about what John is laying out for us, this nice, refreshing break should cause us to realize something. Children, fathers, young men, John's using family language, isn't he? And a family is a 
fellowship. Fellowship. John is calling us to think about where we are in God's family, a theme that he will lay out in chapter 3. So you see, children mature and become youth, who then become elders, the aged. Each group here, while certainly physical, can also be a stage in our spiritual walk. While we should all have the awe and wonder, like a child, the rest of our lives, in relation to this glorious God, we do not stay spiritual babes. No, we cannot. We grow, we mature, we learn, we age, we become wise. Then we become the ancestor. We become the elder who has their own children whom we pass these awesome truths down to, putting them in the presence of Christ. This is what we do. So as we close, standing in the place of John, I've called each of you old and young physically, old and young spiritually, to know the great truths of 1 John thus far. It's a good breather, amen? If you own them, you're saints. You're a dear one. Those truths of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of light, of fellowship, of love, of joy, they are yours. Do not let them go. Do not sleep on them. And do not let them become dull. They're glorious and bright. And if you know in your heart of hearts today, but these truths are not yours, no matter your age, young or old. Be a spiritual babe today. Today, a child of God, a dear one, and grow. Repent of your sins. Turn from them. Live in the word of God, which teaches you who you are and your purpose. Love him. Love others. and Glorify him. Enjoy him. Do not wait, for there may not be a tomorrow. But in one final thought of encouragement, without any ambiguity, as sometimes we see here, I do want to talk to our children. So kids, will you come back down here real quick? Will you come down here in front of me? Kids, come here real quick. Melody, come here. You all come down here. I want to talk to you all for just a second. You know how proud I am of you all? That each week, even if I've had a bad week, each of you have these smiling faces that I can't wait to see. And I want to tell you something. Just like John is talking to little children here in 1 John, I want to tell you something. You are made in the image of God. That you matter. And that you are to reflect Him like a mirror. How many of you all looked in the mirror this morning to fix your hair? Nobody? I can tell Atlas didn't. What's a mirror do? It reflects. You were made in the image of God to reflect him. Know that you have messed up, that you have sinned, you've done bad things. And just like whenever we do bad things at home, we might get spanked, right? There's a consequence, like we say. But know that the consequence of sin, death, was given to Jesus so that you may live. Know him, believe in him, love him. Don't ever don't ever lose it. Don't ever become cold. Don't ever let that go out. And you tell everyone that you know about him and tell them to believe the same thing because it is the truth, the actual truth in a world full of lies. You all believe that? You need to do that. Live it out. My little children, dear children, walk in the light as he is in the light. Know the truths of the Bible. 
live it out. Grace and peace to you. All is present.